You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Hey, everyone. I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome to Literary Treks, our books and comic show here on TFM. I am just one of the hosts here, Matthew Rushing, and I'm so excited to be back with the illustrious Chris Jones coming from, well, the transporter room. So I guess <laughs> you got a quick beam away, if just in case. I am ready. I'm ready to beam out. I'm ready in case my mission to extract Sulu is successful. I can quickly beam everyone aboard here. And I also want to assure you, Matthew, that this is actually me, not a primitive robot dressed in my clothing. Oh, okay. I was wondering if that was the case. I just didn't know if you had a really good mic set up with the robot or... Um, but I see that you're doing some movements and, and you're not doing the robot as you're doing right. them. So. Well, these okay. movements that you are witnessing now were pre-programmed by Scotty, and they will continue running until either I am killed by Klingons or I ran out of energy. That's, yes. So it could we could be here a while. So <laughs> Yes, everyone, a few references to the book that we are going to discuss after our new segment. <laughs> yes, it's going to be an interesting ride. So, um, yeah, so we'll be talking about the Fearful Summons there in our feature section and um we've got some news for you so of course uh just getting back into the swing of things here with literary treks and there's so much happening with the books and the comics of star trek and uh, we know that we've missed some uh comic reviews uh especially for the year five series that's been going on so chris and i are going to be getting back to that we're going to have a monster episode that's the news item coming up in october because not only are we going to be doing these comic reviews, so we've got uh, number 13, 14, and 15 for year five, and a special one-shot Hell's Mirror uh, with uh, none other than Khan in the Mirror Universe. We'll be talking about all of those, as well as a interview with Kirsten um, Beyer and her new book, To Lose the Earth, which we're really excited to finally be getting to. Uh, and, um, yeah, just excited to have Kirsten back. So, yeah, this is going to be fun. Uh, and so be on the lookout for that. You'll want to make sure that you read those comics uh, as we will be talking about them in our next episode. So looking forward to those, especially Khan in a, in a mirror. Yeah, I'm I'm really interested to see where they go with that. So that's a that's actually, I think, a pretty interesting and intriguing idea. Well, he's quite calm, I think, in the mirror universe, right? Doesn't he run an NPO? Uh, yes, and he actually has an NPR voice as well, so uh, it's very strange. <laughs> yeah, no trying to take over the universe for him, so. <laughs> He's just trying to make the universe a better place, Matthew. Just just one day at a time, Chris, just one day at a time. Oh, goodness. Well, um, 
Well, thank you so much for joining us here on Literary Treks. And uh, Chris, I think it's it's just time for us to dive into the fearful summons. Or, as I call it, the sexy summons. <laughs> <laughs> because there is there are moments in this book where I just uh I just stopped and just had to make a note at how people talk about things like the decon chamber and enterprise or some of the scenes that we've gotten in Discovery, or Boimler waiting naked in a shuttle pod on lower decks. And yet, there are some moments in this book that made me say, oh my. So Chris, uh, talking about the Fearful Simmons, or aka the Sexy Summons, um, this book is actually written by uh, the screenwriter, the co-screenwriter for Star Trek Six, The Undiscovered Country. So Denny Martin Flynn wrote this book. And so very interesting. Of course, this one is also following up the events of The Undiscovered Country in some ways, as all the crew of the Enterprise have either, you know, they've they've been retired or, of course, Sulu is is still on the Excelsior. Um, And and Uhura is a vice president of some company. Yeah. So, um, so they're all in various different places. And, and so this book starts with and kind of revolves around the plot of Sulu and the Excelsior. They're out exploring and they run into a ship that, uh, has a distress call that they're answering. And it's uh, a distress call from some beta Promethean traders who have run into a bit of bad luck um, and all of their power is down and are basically what happens is that they kidnap Sulu. So I, I first just had to ask for you uh, this ruse of of the whole thing about uh, their power being down and getting, you know, Sulu um, and a few of his officers beam over to their ship to help them repair it. Um, I, I just I it seemed strange to, for Sulu to kind of fall for this kind of con this late in his career. Yeah, I had the same feeling initially, but. He does show some caution. He is a bit suspicious. He doesn't just buy the whole line right off the bat when they say, oh, you know, we've got 80 people over here. We need to beam over. We're going to die. We don't have food. Our life support's going down. He's a bit cautious. He does have them scan. But then he falls into the trap of going over there himself and taking the crew. And it's the moment when they beam over and they're immediately taking taken hostage that really got me and is what you're saying that he falls for it too easily. So like so many things in this book, it's sort of a mixed bag where one moment the character is behaving in a way that you would expect. And then suddenly they're not. And in this situation, it all comes together essentially in one scene. Yeah. And it was, I I think the thing that was strange to me, it, it just seemed like, you know, even in Star Trek, um, you know, you have the ability to, to obviously be able to scan the other ship, see if their main power is actually down. It's not hard to do. Um, and it just seemed as though um, it was one of those things that, you know, Sulu should recognize. It's like, in many ways, um, 
you know, the, the power transfers are available. You know, we've seen all sorts of things. So um, it, it felt like there should have been at the beginning of this run-in with this distress-called ship and, and these Beta Prometheans that you should have run through a few more scenarios, a, a few more ideas instead of just immediately beaming over and then getting yourself captured. Um, and And their whole goal in capturing Sulu is to try and basically con cargo out of the Enterprise, out of the Excelsior. Right. And, you know, not really realizing that Starfleet ships don't really carry tons of cargo with them. I mean, they're they're not cargo transports. I mean, there's obviously things of value, but they're not, you know, carrying around treasure chests of, like, pirate booty. Yeah. Okay, so that's an interesting point. You would think that... The Federation is well-known. Starfleet is well-known. So you would think that most traders would be aware of the purpose of a starship like the Excelsior. But in the setup, they don't seem to know that much about the Federation. Like These guys are talking about, oh, the Excelsior, it's such a big ship. It must have so much treasure inside. But then as the book goes on, the whole setup is based on how the the Prometheans view the Federation. So that implies that they do know quite a bit about the Federation, and they should be aware. If they're worried about a military invasion of their world by Starfleet, they should be aware of what these starships are. So that's another case where like, the whole premise of the story really flip-flops. Absolutely. And not only that, but I mean, uh, you know, so the Beta Prometheans also have um, massive uh, dilithium crystal deposits on their planet. Mm -hmm. So they've been trading. Now, these are these are um, there's there's an actually set up with with the Beta Prometheans as a whole. I mean, um, and so that's something that's really interesting in this book. They have extensive dilithium crystal depositories and they're quite rich and and they've kind of uh become space traders because of that and they don't really create anything in their culture they just travel around the galaxy trading dilithium crystals for everything they need and so um and their society is is broken into three different sections they have clerics they have a ruling family and then they have this group called the shrewdest ones and on the side you have these like these pirate slash traders Mm-hmm. who have taken Sulu and his crew. And it's fascinating because this society itself is it's it it's very interesting. It it feels like a the if communist Russia and the you know um what we see as many of the Middle East countries mm-hmm. like uh, say Iran had a baby. Okay. And so you know, you because you've got clerics, they have their own agenda. They want to uh, replace the ruling family. Uh, the ruling family uh, and, and the clerics also want to c- com- create a complete theocratic state where they themselves are the head. Of course, the ruling family doesn't want any of this, but they're also the ones who are controlling the dilithium profits. And they don't it doesn't really filter down to, you know, the rest of the people. Um, so they're the ones that have most of the power. And then you have the shrewdest ones who are. Working with the Klingons, um, most likely the same Klingons who were behind Gorkon's assassination. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to convince the people that Starfleet and the Federation are the enemy. 
And so you've got all of these different factions working behind the scenes. And, and then you've just got these pirates who, or, or traitors who've turned themselves into pirates by taking Sulu and the Excelsior crew, or some of them, hostage. And it's just this one big mess. And it was it, what it kind of reminded me of was the end of the Cold War, where you have such a mess in the Middle East area as well as in Russia, where everything's mm-hmm. falling apart and you have all of these factions that are vying for power. And nobody cr- truly has a real clear idea of what's going on because again you throw the Klingons in there too and you've got this faction of Klingons who are trying to instigate another war basically the the same way they did in in Star Trek 6 so Mm -hmm. it it was a really interesting society um, and I wish there had just been more um, there had been more with that like um, I I felt like they set up some really interesting ideas you know um, Flynn has some really great ideas here, but it doesn't ever truly, I feel like, get fleshed out in a way that it could have gone from interesting to really great. I mean, there are interesting ideas in here that could be explored, I think, more effectively if the the parallel with our own world wasn't so on the nose. So you mentioned it's like if communist Russia and the Middle East had a baby. To me, it's even clearer than that. It's just pretty much because the timing of this book, it's 1995, I believe, correct, when it was written. And it's so soon after the first Gulf War. And it really feels like this beta Promethean society is simply the Middle East. And you do have this situation in the Middle East where you have ruling families, you have governments then you have, uh, there's the whole religious angle to this story. And clearly Flynn seems to be comparing the the Western view of Islam and the traitors that capture Sulu and the Excelsior crew behave very much like one of the radical terrorist cells in the Middle East that is not acting on behalf of a government, they're acting on behalf of themselves and their own ideology, and they want to extort. Uh, in this situation, the Federation being the United States, they want to extort them for uh, for money or for some other kind of reward. And there's this kind of mixture between that and also the desire to push the belief system. And... The book seems to want to talk about how on earth we can't get along as different groups of people and our belief systems are always in conflict with one another and that's holding us back. But I personally would prefer to see him do that with a little bit more creativity instead of it feeling so much like it's almost lifted out of the newspaper. It's like a ripped from the headlines kind of story especially at the time it was written because we were just coming right off of that situation and that standoff between the U.S. and Saddam Hussein in the uh, first Gulf War. So it feels very much like that uh, to me. And Well, and it's I, I think what you're saying, too, is like there's a difference between, you know, um, 
the traditional nature of, of Star Trek uh, and, and what we did in Star Trek Six, which is very much an allegory for the end of the Cold War, yeah. because yeah. that had been something in Star Trek that kind of had uh, been a picture of that for so long from the 60s onward. And so it really made sense to kind of bring that to a close and bring this crew and this culmination of all this storytelling to to a a, a conclusion Mm -hmm. with that by allowing Kirk and his biggest enemy to basically shake hands and, and then walk off into the sunset, you know, right off into the sunset. And he wants to do, I feel like, the same thing with this book, yeah. Um. And yet, I think like what you said, it it just feels like one. It feels kind of messy because none of the parts uh, with the Beta Prometheans and all of their different factions are really giving enough um, time or detail to really dig into them to not just feel kind of like cliched mm-hmm. versions of the things like you're mentioning that we yeah. had just witnessed with the Gulf War with Saddam Hussein, the threat always of of um you know Iran. So all of that stuff, it's just it's it's just not nuanced enough or well done enough to really grab you. Right. And the reason that the undiscovered country works really well is because the Klingons and the Federation are set up from the beginning, if you go back to the sixties when Star Trek began, as enemies, and the Klingons were meant to represent the Russian side, the Soviet side of the Cold War. And as you were saying, it's a slow motion process between the United States and the Soviet Union to get to the point where you have to get to Glasnost in the 80s with Gorbachev, which is where Gorkhan comes from. Gorbachev and Abraham Lincoln combined is where the name comes from. And then you have the Chernobyl accident, which is Praxis in the movie. So you have these key moments that you can pull on for the story in a way that makes sense for these two sides. And it's also a very big picture. It's the big ideological standoff between the U.S. and Soviet Union as these two superpowers and how they come together. And finally, they are able to find some kind of peace. They're able to come out of that Cold War. Now, today we're in a whole other situation, but for a while we weren't. When the Soviet Union ceased to exist in December of 1991, in the years that followed, it was a very different feeling. And it really felt like that we had come out of the standoff that had been going on for so long. And that's the feeling that you get at the end of the undiscovered country. And that works quite well. Whereas here, we're, we're just kind of, we're playing around with how two sides that have been in conflict, in ideological conflict with each other on a different level, very much on, very much on a religious level, which is not how the US and the Soviet Union were in conflict for thousands of years in different capacities. Obviously, the US hasn't been around that long, but Western Europe has. And there's been this conflict uh, of ideologies for all this time. And each side views the other side with certain prejudices that are not necessarily justified because there's this lack of understanding. And I think that's a lot trickier to wrap up into a story like this without falling into the traps of those prejudices yourself as the writer. Mm -hmm. 
And a lot of the stuff when I was reading this, and I highlighted sections where I'm just reading what he writes and thinking that, yes, this is the American view of Islam, for example, on a very surface level, without trying to explore how the other side is thinking. Uh, and if you're going to talk about the faith, I think you shouldn't just talk about the radical aspect of the faith, but you should talk about the real faith itself. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it was it was interesting. And I think I think the thing is that uh, and I came away with is like he tries, but it's just it's not quite where it needs to be. And And mm -hmm. part of that is by showing the different sides, like there's the radicalized version of it. There's the uh, institutionalized version of it. Uh, and then there are the people who just, they don't care. They're just trying to make a living. Um, and then there are the ones who are legitimately trying to use it um, to start a, you know, a galactic war here. Right. Uh, and so you have all of these different factions. And again, I think that's the smart part of, of, of not just painting it all with one broad brushstroke if that all people are like this in this region. Right. Um, it's just, again, this is one of the places where you just, if you're going to do that, you really need to be diving into it quite extensively. And, and it would need to be a longer book to really yeah. be able to do that. And so, and I'll say, um, one of the things that, um, I, I saw, uh, earlier, um, or saw in the book and, and this was a, a part where I think, um, bias from from star trek 6 that we saw come out in kirk really stood out uh it, still being a part of starfleet one of the uh the admirals talks about and and this is a quote he says in other words we've brought the bastards out of their stinking primitive undeveloped past and into the future we've given the resources behind their wildest dreams just because their primitive planets happen to be sitting on a dilithium crystal mines and we had to not tow to their demands and play patty cake with their leaders when mm -hmm. we really ought to do is fly up with a S load, he says, of starships and take the pious bastards over. Right. That sentence sounds like it comes from Colonel West and Admiral Cartwright. And it's like, that's the kind of thing that I was very surprised to read in this book that that was still something that was prevalent in starfleet after the events of star trek 6 yeah it doesn't surprise me this story is set about nine months after the undiscovered country it's actually in the same year and i think what that reflects to me is how long it takes to change views and change prejudice uh, i wouldn't ex someone like colonel west i would not expect him to change his way of thinking after Kittimer. Uh, to be honest, I don't think that someone like him at that point in his life would ever truly change his views. Oh, sure. I, I think yeah. it, it, it takes generations to change. The in other interesting thing about that section, and I remember reading that as well and highlighting it, is that it also sounds like something you might hear spoken by someone in the government or the military in the U.S. during this time period that this book was written in reference to the Middle East, in reference to Iraq. You just replace dilithium crystals with oil, and you've got the, the entire scenario 
that played out at that time and in the decade that followed. And I'm certainly not saying that everyone thinks that way. I'm simply saying that there are people who think that way, just as we had Colonel West and the way that he felt. And uh, yeah, well, I mean, and it what's 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 fascinating about it is that attitude sounds like. I mean, it's not. I mean, you can't just we can't just say it's a, a Americans because I mean, <laughs> you you hear you would have heard that same kind yeah. of refrain from top level romans about the barbarians yeah, yeah right you yeah, know like exactly, this yeah, is yeah. this is something that like i think that what what he's he's getting at at least with this is that these these deep-seated and rooted ideas of that we are better than these people right um has been a part of human history and 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 not just human history but i mean one of the things we see in star trek is it helps us show that like beings of all kind have this problem and it's yeah. a it's a it's a struggle to overcome that type of behavior and or bias uh, as we move forward. Except for the dolph eels. The dolph eels, no. They are, they are in apparently a utopia slash Eden. Um, I, that whole section of this book was absolutely ridiculous. And I knew... So what he's trying to do with this like Dolph Eel Utopia yeah. is show that it is possible, I guess, to create Utopia. Right. As long as you don't intermingle with anybody else, I guess. Like it, 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 I I I don't know. It just did not work whatsoever for me. It was interesting because it's used as the setup. It's not really the setup, it's just the mission that they're on at the beginning of the book, but then he comes back to it at the end to try to make the point about how on Earth, our cultures are constantly in conflict, but the Dolphils have found a way to avoid that. And now they seem to be gone. And I actually wrote so long and thanks for all the fish in my notes because it is like the dolphins left again, except these are dolphins on some other planet uh, who, to go back to your comment earlier it's as if a dolphin and an eel had a baby they're the dolphins but it was an interesting science fiction idea that like bookends the story but is not explored at all and i think it would be interesting to explore who are the dolphins and the thing about it is is that they're trying to use he's trying to use it to make a point about this, you know, this idea of how difficult it is for different races and cultures from around the galaxy to interact and 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 work with one another. And how on this Dolphiel planet, instead of creating any kind of technology or whatever, they're working on their mental capacities. Right. Um, so that they're basically transcending, you know. And I mean, it all sounds really good, but it just kind of comes down to like ridiculous mumbo jumbo you know it's like that is the most uh, like that's where like science fiction to me like kind of loses me because it's like you you create an idea that's so utterly foreign to anything we know Mm -hmm. it doesn't really make a ton of sense because it like their planet is literally pristine it's Mm -hmm. it's there's nothing wrong with it you know like it it literally sounds like eden Mm mm-hmm and so, but from what we understand of the galaxy, that's not even possible, you know, to, to have a planet that's that perfect, yeah, right? So, yeah. 
you know, it anyway, like it it was just a little bit too much. Again, I think you you said it when you were talking when we were talking about the beta Prometheans and and their whole society. It just feels so on the nose. Mm-hmm. There's no nuance to it. Yeah. So uh, I, I do want to comment. You know, I, I keep mentioning the, the U.S. here, and it's not meant to be accusing the U.S. of anything. It's just that this particular story seems to be a Star Trek version of the events that were happening at the time the book was written, which were very specifically a standoff between the U.S. and Iraq. There's even the line in here where they talk about how they have surrounded the beta Promethean space so that they can't, the Prometheans can't get any military out. They've like the Federation has created a blockade and they're allowing humanitarian aid to come in and out to a certain extent. It's just, it's the situation is, it's just being transferred over into a Star Trek book. And so that's the reason why I'm specifically talking about that. But, but then you get to the end and there's this comment about, you know, how long do you think it'll take for, for us to, resolve this kind of conflict amongst ourselves and they say well it's going to take they've been trying for for ages and that again is the situation of the uh, attempts to find peace in the middle east oh and the other thing i wanted to say matthew when you were reading that quote earlier about we've brought the bastards out of their stinking primitive undeveloped past into the future we've given them resources beyond their wildest dreams and so forth that i said that you can replace dilithium crystal mines for oil. But that's the other kind of the view. It's the short-term view, whereas actually that part of the world gave us many of the arts and sciences that we have today. You know, that the culture is very ancient, but it's something that is often not taken into account when we talk about other cultures. Well, and at least the way this culture is portrayed there isn't those that we don't, I mean, we have no concept that they have any of those things. It just seems like because the book this... doesn't explore it, but right, like exactly. you were saying earlier, he puts the pieces in place that he could have explored that the culture is different. He even mentions militaristic Klingons at one point, which suggests that, yeah, there are different kinds of Klingons. You know, there are the right. scientist Klingons and the mathematician Klingons and the doctor Klingons and all. He never goes into it, but he does make, the point of mentioning specifically militaristic Klingons, which was interesting because normally we just think that all Klingons are militaristic. Right. Right. So one of the big parts of this book is the fact that because Sulu has been taken, uh, that Kirk is going to get the crew back together. And so we find them in retirement. And so I, I kind of wanted to ask you about, you know, the different places that we find, you know, we've got Kirk, Scotty, Uhura, Bones, Spock, and Chekhov all doing different things now that they're retired um, from Starfleet. And first off, you know, I thought it was really interesting because I felt like Kirk himself feels quite aimless there on Earth. He doesn't seem to be really doing anything right until... He runs into this this young cadet uh, at a at a you know uh, apparently Starfleet CD bar uh, with with Delton dancers and um, <laughs> they strike up a relationship. Yeah, and it just it, what seems strange is that 
it just seemed weird that Kirk would be aimless. Like, uh, even in Generations, you know, uh, in the deleted scene, you have him doing, like, the the uh, the halo jumping, you know, from a starship down to Earth, that kind of stuff, thrill-sinking, mm-hmm. you know, like, still trying to get that. Here, he just kind of seems like... I don't know. It 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 didn't compute to me that Kirk would basically be doing nothing. Hmm. Yeah, uh, that didn't stand out to me as much because another way of looking at Kirk, and this I think is how Flynn is approaching Kirk, is that he wants to be in space on a starship exploring. You know, his demotion at the end of the voyage home from admiral to captain was like the greatest thing that could ever happen to him because he gets to go back out there in space. Yeah, I think about my father. My father was basically a handyman. He loved building things. He loved doing things hands-on. And at one point in his life, he ended up with a desk job. And for a few years, he sat at this desk and he did this desk work. And then one day he called me up and he told me that he quit and he was going to become a truck driver. And after that, he drove cross-country tractor trailer for a number of years. And then he was able to get it down to where it was more regional because cross-country in the U.S. is obviously very exhausting and you're gone for weeks. But he had to get out and be going somewhere. He could not sit at a desk. And that's Kirk I think. And while in reality, Kirk would probably do something like, you know, go climb a mountain or do some kind of activities if he's on Earth. Another way of looking at it and portraying him, and I think it's probably done here for the setup of the story, why he jumps into action and goes. And because, to be honest, I can see Kirk being concerned about Sulu. But Kirk and Sulu, we never see them have such a close relationship. Like Kirk going to save Spock, to find Spock in the search for Spock, definitely. That, yes, he's not going to let Spock rot on some planet. But to jump into action to go rescue Sulu and not try harder to get something going through diplomatic channels, that I had a little bit of a hard time buying. And so I think Flynn is sort of setting up Kirk as being bored out of his mind on earth and starting to feel down on himself as he's getting older, which is why he, you know, has this setup with this Barbara, this young cadet who he gets into a relationship with, which uh, starts to kick off the, the many, many sexual moments of this book which is why I call it the sexy summons. And then also why he gets the band back together and gets this yacht called the plush princes. So he can go out back into space for one more mission. Yeah. I mean, um, I do think that that part made sense that Kirk would be trying in some ways to recapture his youth, um, with, uh, a Barbara. younger woman, and that that would be a, a a way of doing that, um, and and kind of giving him that that feeling of of being young again, um, and you know, if you're an older man to, to for for a younger woman to be attracted to you, 
is definitely an ego boost, you know, and so, uh, you know, Kirk wanting that and kind of needing that. Um, and it's interesting because she legitimately does seem to have interest in Kirk. Uh, and um, I thought that was fascinating that within the book, you know, you get this feeling like because it looks like she might be doing something shady, you know. And then the end, no, she hasn't been. And, and not only that, but the relationship that they have started started before Kirk ever, you know, had said anything to her about maybe wanting to go off and help Sulu. So right. this is actually a real relationship that they're having. And she seems to be interested interested and keen to continue that uh, in the future, which, um, you know, I have I have no problems with. and But it is very interesting to me that... Um, that she would be interested in Kirk in the first place. Um, but I mean, I guess, you know, he's famous, uh, and he's kind to her, like, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and I will say this, Flynn kind of plays around with the idea a little bit that Kirk has a girl in every port. And yet when you actually watch Star Trek, that's not Kirk at all. Um, he gets the reputation of being yeah. like that, but it's not actually true. And, um, so to see him kind of get into this relationship and actually be involved in it and and and, and want to pursue it was was fascinating to me. And I think it was good, you know, because that helps with um, changing the perception of Kirk, which yeah. that was nice. So um, it was a little more explicit than I'm used to. I guess uh, I mean I, I don't really watch Discovery, and I know Discovery can get pretty explicit in its its uh, sexual scenes. Um, yeah, not but, so uh, this, much. This really. seemed this yeah this seemed uh, like um, I don't know uh, a little soft ish <laughs> in some well, points. I mean we have to read this little section right here. Oh no! When <laughs> oh, I. I've got a bad feeling about this. Well, when uh, when Kurt goes into Mos Eisley, or the, the Flag and Grog, as it's called here in this story, and uh, they describe it as a burst of starlight and red, white, and blue lasers flashed in the giant mirror above the bar. It reflected activity throughout the large room. Low tones thundered out of speakers overhead. The surface of the mirror turned to glass, and behind it, Kirk could see two humanoid forms. Then, the glass turned to smoke. Lights dimmed throughout the bar, and the smoke began to clear, leaving the two figures standing on a mirrored stage floor, bathed in a red-orange glow. They made a handsome couple. The woman wore only a white satin G-string featuring the Starfleet insignia, spiked heeled glass shoes, and a string of Martian pearls around her neck. The man wore a black G-string pouch in the same shape and knee-high leather boots. Both were Delton, Kirk knew, the most erotic people in the galaxy. And you probably don't want me to read the next part because it gets a little more explicit. Probably not. I, I think that this, <laughs> but, we should try and keep this as a family show. So. But, but this, I mean, this really stood out to me because you don't normally get quite this type of description in Star Trek, I think back to, say, Broken Bow, the pilot episode of Enterprise, and how erotic the the butterfly dance, the dancers with the long tongues and yeah. the butterflies yep. was. Yep. And that was nothing at all like this. That was just sort of alien exotic, but it had this sort of kind of erotic nature to it. And this was really out there. Yeah. 
it was it was a little too much. Uh, so, <laughs> but it's not the only time that we get something like this in this book. No, because Kirk and Barbara's interludes with one another, or, yeah. or you know, they're 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 not uh, Game of Thrones level. But I mean, there's there's definitely. I mean, talk about wretched hive of scum and villainy. Uh, it, it's uh, you know, we we get a little, we get a taste of everything in this book. Well, in the coda. Flynn even makes the comment that it appears that the Dolphials are not yet ready for intergalactic intercourse. And I wasn't quite sure what he was referring to there. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> um, let's move on. So we talked about Kirk and, and Barbara. You know, what did you think of, of the rest of the crew here with Scotty and Uhura, okay, Bones yeah. and Spock? And uh, well, well, before we do that, let's just talk about Spock. Uh, I think the rest of them, it's it's kind of normal-ish maybe, but Spock is on Vulcan acting. Right. Trying to get in touch with basically his emotional side. Okay, I, no, this does not work <laughs> at all. Well, it made some sense to me. I agree with you in general, it doesn't work. But if you look at the Undiscovered Country, and again, this is nine months later, if you look at the experiences that Spock had in the undiscovered country, uh, he mind melds with Valeris. Valeris is very emotional. And if you look at just the events of that movie and how everything played out, and we know that from the beginning of the voyage home, essentially what we see on screen, the end of the search for Spock, that Spock is having to learn how to be in touch with his human side again and learn what emotions are again. And there's that scene where he tells Valeris, you know, that logic is only the beginning of wisdom, not the end. I think it makes sense that Spock would be continuing to explore this aspect of his human side. And I feel like the whole thing of him being back on Vulcan, doing a Vulcan production of Hamlet is just, an, and especially with Flynn being one of the writers of The Undiscovered Country, is a continuation of the Shakespeare theme from The Undiscovered Country. And Spock is exploring Shakespeare even more. So it's a bit odd, but it didn't come completely out of left field for me. I, I see, I do see what you're saying, obviously. And I think, obviously, you've got the connections with, you know, uh, the undiscovered country again. I feel like it's so on the nose. It's it's just too much, and yeah. it's um it, and I think having Spock explore his his emotional side. Uh, I, I think that's fine. You know, I I don't I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I, I think the problem with it is is that um it felt like the most unSpock way to be exploring your emotions possible and then it's kind of used in a joke-like manner later when he's doing makeup on them to make them look more like right. ones, which you know that didn't make a lot of sense um there's a joke in there about spock there's a joke later about spock going on vacation and getting his luggage lost yeah that was weird it, it, so there's so many things there with spock that just don't compute as spock-like and you know, part of writing tie-in fiction, and, and strange that he's the co-writer for this movie, that one of my favorite Star Trek movie of all time, yeah. Because he doesn't seem to have a good grasp on the 
voices of the characters. And at, at times, but then at other yeah, times he does. Exactly. Yeah. There are times when that happens. But there's, but the, the, put it this way, there's that line where Kirk says to Bones, you know, I don't make a habit of talking about my personal life with uh, my, my subordinates, basically. People under my command. And mm-hmm. it's like, that's BS because Kirk has spent his entire career talking to Bones and right. Spock about his yeah. personal life. Mm-hmm. So it's like there are those moments like where they'll they'll sound like that they are and I think that comes down to the tone of the book. Like there are moments where things feel right on target and then there are mm-hmm. moments where it's like I don't even think you knew where the target was when you were writing that. Like the target the line is a dot to you. <laughs> yeah. Well, the the comment you're talking about, I have it here, uh, where Spock is talking to Scotty, and Scotty says that it's not like going to Mars for a vacation. And Spock says, I have been to Mars for a vacation. Really? Scotty said, what was it like? Mr. Spock paused to remember. They lost my luggage, he said. I'm sorry, Spock shrugged. I have not been on vacation since. Yeah, it doesn't sound like Spock at all, right? What I wonder is, is it supposed to be sort of like Spock when he was on Earth in the voyage home? That kind of trying to use like more everyday English in a way that just sounds really odd out of Spock. But if so, it's completely out of place in the book. Well, and it it worked then because he had just gotten back from the dead. And so he wasn't quite right in the head. You know, and like, right. this is yeah. the Spock from, again, the undiscovered country who talks to Valerius and says that, you know, um, logic is only the beginning of wisdom. Like, this is yeah. the I Ching of Spock at yeah. this point. So he should, and, and this is where I don't feel he needed that. I don't feel like Spock needed the to go get in touch with his emotions because I feel like Spock in the undiscovered country is very much in touch with his emotions. Yeah. Um. And so it's like, I feel like this whole storyline is irrelevant and unneeded for the character because that character was already in a very good place emotionally in the first place. So what would you expect Spock to be doing nine months after the undiscovered country? Do you think he would have, would it have been appropriate for him to be starting down that path of being a sort of ambassador, uh, being involved in federation politics in some way or off on his own somewhere doing something other than hamlet and learning how to do stage makeup i think that it would have been more realistic to have him working in some kind of capacity uh like we saw maybe he's starting on his road to a reunification Mm -hmm. um i think that would have been really interesting um you know, something along those lines that like that experience had made him see, you know, like again, anything would have been better, I think, mm-hmm. than him, yeah. you know, doing this very strange um, dance with, with acting. Yeah. As for the others, again, I, I thought it was very, very cliche. We find Scotty in the Highlands of Scotland. We find Chekhov. In Russia, right? Right. It's like if if you and I retired and someone found us in a barbecue joint in the South eating ribs, you know, it's like because we're American. Let's put them there. Like if Sulu had been on Earth 
is he going to be in a sushi bar mm-hmm. in Osaka? I, I don't know. It, it was just very, very cliche to like put everybody back in their supposed country of origin, especially right. when you get to the end of the book and Barbara asks Kirk, isn't San Francisco home to you? And he tells her, well, no, it's not, you know, and, you know, Kenya's not home for Uhura and Scotland's not home for Scotty. Space is our home. So in the beginning, he puts everybody in their countries of origin. That's where they're going to retire because they've gone back home. But then at the end, he says, actually, this isn't home for anybody. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I, I just it, none of it really made spence, sense to me. I mean, uh, the biggest thing was like Ahura is now all about making the Benjamins or the credits or whatever it is they make. <laughs> there isn't even money in the 23rd century. Um, you know, okay. Kirk even talks about that, that the monetary system, you know, we, we hear that in Star Trek four right. doesn't carry money. There's no need for money, you know, uh, it, um, and I didn't understand too. This is one thing I never understand. Chekhov is the same age as Sulu. Why mm-hmm. isn't Chekhov being given his own ship? Why isn't, I mean, like Chekhov deserves his own ship. Like he should be a captain at this point. Like he, he has enough experience in Starfleet with the, with the best crew in Starfleet, he should be just like Sulu and having it because he's younger than Sulu in right. Star Trek chronology. So it's like he'd be primed to be a captain at this point. So that didn't make a lot of sense. Um, you know, uh, Scotty actually was the one I get. I know he's in the Highlands of Scotland, but Scotty retiring to like a place where he's away from the engine room kind of made sense, at least for a while he was somebody who wanted to slow down, you know, um, and maybe just tinker with things on the side. Remember, nine months earlier, he had just bought a boat. So maybe he's got the boat there on a Scottish lock. There you go. There you go. So <laughs> it makes sense. Um, yeah, it's weird. Um, so I did want to ask you one thing that I thought was interesting in this book, because um, the crew basically we, we find out in the end that basically Starfleet once they've found out through Barbara that Kirk is going to get the band get back together mm-hmm. and go after Sulu, that because they're stuck between a rock and a hard place, between they can't actually intervene without starting some kind of intergalactic incident, um, that they're supporting this through Barbara and you know allowing things to to move forward. How did you feel about that? Um, did, did that work for you as um, that they were basically using them as the intermediaries? Um, did, did that part of the story work for you at all? Yeah, I think so, because it is true, as it's portrayed in the book, that the Federation would... I say it's true. I think within the Star Trek context, is true that the Federation would not take action would not take military action on its own. And this is where the sort of parallel with what was happening at the time breaks down a little bit, because obviously the U.S. did take military action. Uh, The U.S. formed a coalition. The first Gulf War formed a large coalition of nations to take some action, so it wasn't like a, a unilateral thing. But I think within the Star Trek context here, the Federation would try to find a way to extricate its kidnapped officers, but do it behind the scenes. Now, how do they go about doing that? 
I think it's more realistic that they would probably have like a Section 31 type operation to go in and get them. But the book then couldn't be an original series book focusing on Kirk in that situation. So having it be, having them see that Kirk is concerned about Sulu and seeing an opportunity to sort of use Kirk to to do this work for them behind the scenes. I think it probably makes sense because that way there's no way the Federation, there's no way that Starfleet has to get its hands dirty in this situation because if Kirk fails, they can just brush it under the rug. Like Barbara said at the end, when the three starships came in and, and saved the plush princes, this never happened. It's completely off the record. And in the coda later, it's what is it like a month later? Uh, Sarek is there and they're talking about how the uh, Beta Prometheans decided to release the prisoners. And Sarek is saying, thank you so much for doing that. And the Federation's taking great note of your actions. And even then, like on a diplomatic level, there, are, of course, Sarek has to know what happened, I'm sure. But on a diplomatic level, they're still keeping it completely off the books. So I think it worked okay for me that they would do that. I do think in reality, they probably would have had like a more Section 31 type task force go in. They wouldn't have used a retired Starship crew. Well, it, it, so uh, to me, that that whole part uh, at the very end, Dakota with Sarek reminded me of the end of The Hunt for October. Mm-hmm. where the diplomats are talking together mm-hmm. and he's like, you've lost another submarine, you know, right, but there's, yeah. there's been this whole dance. They know what they know and everybody knows yeah. what actually happened, but nobody's going to talk about it because we're just sweeping it under the rug. So all that really worked for me. It, it to me, it, it kind of made sense that they would use Kirk because Kirk is an experienced commander. I mean, he's been on the frontier. Like, all of these things Kirk is very used to doing, and the people that he's recruited are are still some of Starfleet's best, really. So for them to then underhandedly support that mission through Barbara made complete sense to me, and, and it works within, obviously, the, the confines of the Star Trek universe. So um, I, I thought it worked uh, as well as possible. And, you know, it kind of... It's 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 something that um you know you saw in the 80s and the 90s um with governments doing um mm-hmm. with with different operations of like supporting these areas but like not really being you know not really being True. them so yeah. we you know we're we're uh I think of that movie with Tom Cruise American Made where he's just a civilian who's running all this cash um from um the big drug cartels and everything. And, you know, so that you, you obviously think of the Rand Contra deal kind of thing. Right. You know, all of that yeah. kind of stuff. You know, we're, we, we're, we understand governments do things that, that we'll never hear about, um, to get things resolved through all sorts of means. So, you know, this, this kind of made sense to me. And, and obviously, the whole point is to get the, crew, the band back together. Well, so that's the point, know. too. What, what it makes me wonder is, well, first of all, when you get to the end and the revelation is made, then you think back to things like the officers on the Starbase helping them load the 
weapons containers, you know, onto the plush princes and all. And at, as you're going along, you're kind of worried, like, well, if this all falls apart, you know, those guys are going to get in trouble. But then in the end, you know, probably they knew the whole time what was going on. And even having unfettered access to the replicator was probably part of all that support as well. Right. So right. I, I think he did a good job of of concealing that aspect of the story as you read and then revealing it at the end. It wasn't too transparent what was going on. I was worried that the whole Barbara as a conspirator storyline was going to kind of uh, fade out at the end and like really not have any meat to it at all. So at least that was kind of built up at the end to to have some meaning to it. I, I just think that, uh, you know, the examples you give are very true in the real world, although usually governments are supporting larger factions, not a group of six people on some kind of right. mission. Right. And the other thing I wonder is, was the Federation Council already starting to think about what can we do to get the Excelsior crew back? And then they just happened to stumble upon Kirk in the bar and learned that he was concerned and that he was probably going to take action. And then they decided, why don't we go this route instead? Yeah. I mean, and, and actually, you know, when you kind of hear from Barbara at the end and they kind of explains it all, that does kind of seem to be the way that they were wanting to do something. And then this opportunity presented itself and they're like, well, we'll just go with Kirk because, yeah. you know, honestly, there are very few people that would be better at this than him. So um, I would say that the opportunity just fell in their lap. But with the other stuff going on in that bar, I'm not sure if I want to use that wording. Uh, yeah, <laughs> no, good call. Good call. Um, So on that note, Chris, uh, on that high note, I feel like it's 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 time to rate the fearful summons. So where did you end up with this book as uh, and, and in your ratings? Well, uh, I guess I'm going to have to give this book. Two out of five illegal water guns. I I think that's a a fair fair rating. Um, you know, on on Goodreads, I feel like I had said that I put two point five, but as we talked about the book, it really is only two out of five CD bar drinks. Um, because it there, it's because it's so wildly inconsistent. Um, it's the lack of consistency in the tone that really hurts the book. I mean, I think the, the bones of the story are good. Yeah. What I feel like it needed was an extensive, like rewrite, uh, to clean it up and, and, and not just that, but to really get into the voice of the characters Mm -hmm. in a much better way than they actually do here. So, yeah, it, it does feel kind of like a first draft of a story idea that hasn't been refined by the writer or the editor to clean up those inconsistencies in voice, mm-hmm. to add nuance to the ideas, to add nuance to the situations and the societies so that it's not quite so on the nose. I think that the idea is good. I think it does what science fiction does well, what Star Trek does well. I could picture it as an original series episode, but I do think that even as an original series episode, it would be less transparent, more nuanced. And 
probably to tell the story, I can see it as more like a Enterprise fourth season three-parter type arc so that you could have enough time to tell the entire story and flesh things out. I don't think you could do it in 52 minutes, but but uh, no, the concept is good, but the execution is is a bit weak. Yeah, you know, um, I will, uh, and I, I don't mean this to be derogatory, but honestly, I feel like this feels a little bit more like a fan fiction work you would find online than it does mm. an actual novel because of so many of the wild inconsistencies which don't really just seem to make sense, you know. Um, yeah, it's just very, it's very interesting to me um, that that this book was written by somebody who wrote my favorite Star Trek movie, and yet this is this is what we ended up with. Yeah, maybe the timeline for writing the book was rushed, and there was not time to go back and refine it. I, I'm not sure, but uh, there are inconsistent. I don't know. I don't have the print book. I only have the ebook. There are a number of typos in the book. There are. There's a lot of missing punctuation, and they refer to memory alpha three times in the book. And the first time they call it alpha memory, and the next two times they call it memory alpha. So even that kind of little detail, which should be caught in cleaning up a story, is in there. And I know. Things were a bit more inconsistent in the mid-90s. The novels that we get today are much more polished. But these types of things do also kind of suggest that uh, maybe this could have used a bit more time and attention. So, Chris, that was a lot of fun talking about The Fearful Summons. And I'm so excited because, you know, next month we just have just a killer show coming up with Kirsten talking through To Lose the Earth. I can't wait to be back in her Voyager series. As everybody knows, we're huge fans of hers and her books. Um, But uh, and we've we've got some great comics we're going to be diving into but um, yeah, I'm just really excited to to be doing that, and it was fun to get back together to talk about uh, a Star Trek book. Hopefully, next when I, I think next month will be a much more successful. Uh, I think so. Book to yeah. talk about. <laughs> I think so. Uh, when you suggested we read this one, I've never read this book, so I thought, okay, yeah, let's give it a shot and, and see what it's like. And it's the first time that we've discussed a book together in a long time. Yeah. Well, and it's funny because, you know, I read this book years and years and years ago, back closer to when it came out. Mm -hmm. So I really did not remember the story much at all, other than the fact that, you know, Kirk goes to save Sulu after uh, the uh, events of the the undiscovered country and i'm interested because i would like to then cover sometime next year we'll we'll try and cover uh the last roundup that christy golden did which is an another book set after um the undiscovered country and kind of it'd be interesting to compare to see which one's better in the end so definitely matthew i'm looking forward to that so everyone you've heard our thoughts on the fearful summons and we'd love to hear yours So if you'd like to share your thoughts on the book, there are many ways that you can do that. The best way is to join the Babel Conference on Facebook. That's our listeners group. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field, and it should come up. If not, just type the whole name, the Babel Conference. If you're a member, you know how to get there. But if you're not, it is a closed group. So you'll need to answer a few questions so that I can let you in. So please be sure to answer those. And then you'll find a post when this episode comes out, and you can join in the conversation there. 
in the comment thread. You can also send us an email if you like. Go to our website at trek.fm slash contact and use the form there. Choose to send to a show and choose Literary Treks, and that'll come to Matthew and me by email. You can also find us on Twitter, where our username is trekfm, and we have a main page on Facebook also, trekfm. And guess what? That's our name on Instagram also, so you can find us all around under that username, trekfm. And if you'd like to help us keep these shows coming, we could definitely use your help. If you'd like to become an associate producer or just a supporter or take part in the roundtable discussions that we have with listeners and hosts, you can find out everything you need to know about that by going to Patreon at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. And you um, and find out everything that you need to know about how to support us over there. And I'd like to send out a big thanks to the associate producers of Literary Treks, Greg Rosier and Casey Pettit, for their support of the show and the network. Thank you so much. We really could not do this without you. So, Matthew, we've told people how to share their thoughts on the show with the network in the Babel Conference, but what do people want to find you? Where are you? When you're not busy sewing a little Starfleet insignia onto your favorite G-string. Oh, wow. Uh, well, <laughs> when I'm uh, not doing that uh, time-intensive task, you can find me over on Twitter, Instagram, Letterbox, Vero, under the name MattRushing02. Uh, of course, you can also follow uh, the 602 Club, which is TFM's uh, part of the network devoted to everything that's not Star Trek, and we're now on Twitter and Instagram. So please follow us there. We'd love uh, to be able to uh, interact with you. We're you know sharing things, Christy and I, and talking about all the things that are going on in the entertainment world and the 602 Club. Uh, you can find me, of course, doing The Orb with you, Chris. When we get a chance, we talk about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Uh, and then, of course, the 602 Club itself, which is the show where we talk about everything that's not Star Trek here. So many great fandoms uh, to talk about uh, beyond Star Trek, so check that out. And then over on the Nerd Party Network doing a couple of shows, one is called Owl Post, doing that with Dre Kaufman as we talk about Harry Potter one chapter at a time. Uh, and then you can also find me doing the rest of the negotiations with John Mills. Is It's a Star Wars podcast, and every week we're talking about a new Star Wars topic. Um, but, um, Chris, when you're not frequenting the most seedy bar in the galaxy, hoping to see your favorite Deltons perform, where can we find you? Well, of course, I'm busy replicating contraband in the form of water guns to trade for hostages. But when I'm not busy doing that... You can find me doing some other podcasts here on the network. There's The Ready Room. That's my main show, which I do with Larry Nemechek. Uh, most recent episode, we did a roundup of Lower Decks mid-season, and that's out there right now. I also have a Star Trek Universe podcast called Interphase, and I have a new episode coming up soon where Chris Chaplin and I are discussing serialization in Star Trek, specifically looking at Voyager and DS9 and how they compare, although we do talk about the overall franchise a good bit. And also there's The Orb, which you mentioned, which is our Deep Space Nine show. And I'm planning life-allowing, work-allowing, to do Notes from the Edge as Star Trek Discovery returns in October for its third season. So hopefully I'll be able to bring you that. Follow along as that story unfolds. 
And if you'd like to reach out to me on social media, the best place is Twitter. That's where I'm most active. My username is C Brian Jones, letter C and Brian with a Y. That's my username everywhere in social media. And then you can also find me there in the Babel conference. Well, we want to say thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.